As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello and welcome to Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone, joined as always by James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence. Good morning, guys. Morning, Ian. Morning. Morning. Uh, No one likes us, we don't care. That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, No weekend football to discuss, Uh, plenty still going on. It was, of course... Meant to be the North London derby on Sunday, but as we all know, Arsenal were ravaged with COVID and injuries and inexplicable loans and had no players left apart from Gunasaurus and Mikel Arteta. Um, If the game had gone ahead on Sunday, we were going to ask, how do you think it would have gone? Um, I have my own theories about this. James, I'll come to you first. (laughs) Well, actually, I think Arsenal probably would have won. Anyway, get in Arsenal. <laughs> and I think in some ways that would have been the funniest outcome. If Arsenal had been made to play and Tottenham had crowed about it and thought, yeah, we're finally going to get a game against a very understrength Arsenal. And then we'd gone there and won anyway. I think that would have been incredibly satisfying. Um, <laughs> and, and I think pretty realistic, given some of the players they're missing, especially Son, who I think there's a very good case is their best player. Um so, yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. Maybe they should reschedule it for the end of the season, a kind of, you know, fourth place playoff, the final game. Uh, oh, yes. That would be nice and relaxing. Can you imagine? <laughs> but, yeah, I think if we, whatever would happen, I think we would have won. Of course we would. Of course we would. Amy? <laughs> I mean, no one, by the way, no one here is going to go for, I think, a narrow defeat, probably. I just all our injuries would have caught up with us. What do you think, Amy? <laughs> well, um, I was up in the night wondering about this. I'm not one of life's great sleepers. Uh, so any excuse to sort of have something to think about that isn't bad in the early hours is always good. And um, I remembered how when my kids were little, it sometimes instead of bedtime stories, they would ask me to make up a story uh, of a football match, usually involving Arsenal, that they would end up playing in. You know, this sort of <laughs> fantasy, sort of like dream scenario, like... Oh my God, it's an amazing thing. But, you know, it, and of course, like all these things, it's like great music. You have to have the kind of like the disharmony followed by the harmony, the dissonance followed by the resolution. You know, there's a terrible, it's all looking awful. And, 
you know, the the evil opposition have gone ahead and uh, they desperately need something to turn it around and on comes the hero plucked from the crowd, you know, that kind of thing. And they fell for it every time, obviously. But anyway, so I was imagining what might have happened as I used to do with these stories. And I had a very clear vision of Tottenham having a penalty which Ramsdale saves and really large is it. I mean, you can imagine that he would enjoy that. And I, I've, I've, I also visualised a winner from Gabrielle. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. I don't know why he was—he was, he was the not? man who just came into my mind as the person who would score the winner. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, wish I'd seen it. To be yeah, honest, we should have played, shouldn't we? It's yeah, we. Uh, well, well, <laughs> I, I was, um, I personally, well. What happened was I realised that Harry Kane was uh, was one off scoring his two hundred and fiftieth goal uh, for um, I don't know if it's Tottenham or just generally in the league. So I thought it'd be quite nice if we were four 0 up and maybe got a consolation in the eighty ninth minute. <laughs> Even though I was unhappy for Ramsdale's uh, clean sheet, but I thought yeah, that's because then Sky can't go completely crazy over Harry Kane scoring that two hundred fiftieth goal because it means. Nothing, mate. Not a thing. By the way, and I think we have talked about this before, Amy, a friend of ours, mutual friend of all of ours, Alan Davis, who presents uh, another Arsenal podcast. Me and him had a discussion about these sort of football dreams. His always uh, end up with crushing victories, whereas I quite like going 2-0 down and then coming back. Uh, it's just a personal thing. He wants to grind them into the dust. And I get that as well, by the way. I totally do. Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, maybe this, I don't want to do any cod psychology here on his psychological makeup. But, um, you know, wh- whichever. We beat Spurs and that's all very, very good. Um, I've never been... We haven't even played at the Tottenham Stadium, have we yet, by the way? We haven't... Have we had a game there? No, we have, no. but I don't think... I'm not sure we have with fans. Ah, that's what it is. That's mm. what it is. OK, OK. Well, I'm sure at some point we'll all get to visit the Toilet Bowl. Uh, uh, hopefully for, as James said, a fourth place playoff. Hey, do you know what, James? We won't need it. We'll be in third, mate. I'm watching Chelsea. They're going downhill. OK. So, uh, 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 you can read all about uh, Arsenal uh, over on The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber, then head over to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. But from the outside to a neutral, this looks like Arsenal, for some reason, running scared of Spurs. That's not a good look either, is it? Now, as mentioned, if unless you're living in a cave, you'd know about this. It was meant to be the North London derby. For one reason or another, we didn't have enough players. Um, I should point you all in the direction of Arsblog's piece yesterday, uh, which, and Amy mentioned this to me, and I'd read it, and I'm sure you've seen it, James, pretty much summed up the feelings of all Arsenal fans. Essentially, we couldn't give a shit. Uh, in fact, the moodier you get, the funnier we find it, all right? Uh, the rules are that you need 13 outfield players and one goalkeeper available for the game. Other clubs have done it, right? 20-something. But suddenly when we ask for a game to be called off, everyone in football loses their minds. Burnley against Leicester is one thing, but the North London derby, you can't cancel that. Well, yes, we can. Um, James, I'll ask you first. Does it annoy you? Or amuse you that it's seemingly us that's been singled out as the rule breakers in all this? Uh, I think it more amuses than annoys. I, I think I, I. It's interesting because in the build-up to the postponement, I felt quite conflicted. I have to say because, kind of on a point of principle, I'm not sure that I think any of these games should be postponed. Um, 
But once the decision was made and once there was the kind of outpouring of outrage around Arsenal, it did start to become quite absurd and I did start to find it very funny. I think whether or not it's Arsenal, I don't know. I think clearly there could be a component that it's the fact that it's Arsenal that's got people so riled up. But I think there are other ingredients. I think it's a kind of cumulative realisation of the flaws in the postponement system. Uh, And I think there have been several instances before the Arsenal game that have kind of laid that bare. Obviously, we know about the Liverpool one and the League Cup. And I think that damage the credibility and the integrity of the postponement system. But there have been others too, like Leicester played in the FA Cup and yet had their Premier League game three days later postponed, even though they'd been fined to play in the Cup. Um, Similarly, I think Crystal Palace asking for a postponement against Tottenham. Then when the game was on, fielding uh, an 11 with one unenforced change from their previous game. These things have gradually gradually ramped up, I think, um, people's lack of belief uh, in in the system. And Arsenal, it feels like, was the straw that broke the camel's back in that respect. I also think the fact that it's a big game, you know, people wanted to watch uh, Arsenal Spurs. And I think, to be honest, a lot of neutrals probably wanted to watch you know, Edu and Gunasaurus playing central midfield for Arsenal. I think a lot of people would have enjoyed our struggles. They would have been a, you know, a, a Schadenfreude for the neutral that they've been robbed off. And I think that's why there's been so much uh, aggravation on on social media and in the media more generally. There has. Uh, social media has been particularly entertaining for the last few days. Um, I did speak to Amy uh, last night uh, uh, about that very thing. Um Amy, I'm not so bothered about the Premier League and the mess they've got themselves into, right? They, they, It's not easy, and I do have sympathy because, you know, COVID has made everything more difficult, and this is certainly one of those things. But in terms of the Arsenal, I know how much you like it when people hate us. I mean, I know that you do, because uh, you sort of you grew up, as it were, in the Jules Graham era, and that was part of the fun. Um it isn't a figment of our imagination, is it? Or is, or are we just making it up because, you know, we like it when, when they do hate us? Because it means we're a threat to them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I often feel, I wonder whether the way you feel about Arsenal or your relationship to your club is very formulated by the era that you grow up in. You know, you have certain kind of um, fundamentals that are associated with your kind of first uh, bit of the love affair. So, you know, when, when you when you dive headlong, it's how you feel then that is your baseline, I think, for how you feel about your club. And it can change. And obviously with a lot of us of a certain age, it ch- it's changed a lot over the years. But um, anyone who grew up with sort of um, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, to an extent early 90s Arsenal, um, that was very much part of the of the atmosphere part of the environment was that you know uh, arsenal were not that popular outside the club and particularly during successful eras that was something that managers and players used and it was passed down from generation to generation pat rice who spent about 50 years at the club in just about every role you can imagine who was a youth player in the 60s he was a first team player in the 70s winning the the double and and then the tail end of the 70s the FA Cup as captain uh he was a youth team manager in the 80s and and 90s he then went on to become Arsene Wenger's assistant manager for a long time 
And he used to he he couldn't even say Tottenham's name. <laughs> he used he genuinely if you in conversation he'd go that lot, you know, or them down the road, you know. He didn't like to say the name, but he was someone who I remember him saying to me years ago, everybody hates us. It's good, you know, it, th- that's where, how it is. People hate you. You want to play for Arsenal, they hate you. And he used to tell players who came in from the outside, he used to tell Freddie Jungberg or, you know, um, any of those, uh, th- those players who came in from overseas around that time, that that was part of the picture. He used to tell them two things. One, you're here to win. Win, that's it. He didn't have any kind of tolerance for, oh, you know, we try and do our better. You're here to, the expectancy at this club is you're successful. And the other thing he would say is, everyone hates you. And that lot down the road, you've got to, you, you know, you, you don't like them and that's the way it should be. And those kind of things are part of the club. And I, I think one of the knock-on effects of this situation, and funnily enough, I felt that it was growing a little bit even previously to this uh, this controversial uh, uh, calling off of the match, is a bit of siege mentality developing within the squad. You know, the couple of games they've had to play with 10 men, uh, some of the difficulties that have been uh, really challenging for the group in recent matches and coming through. And it's a bit like, it's a bit of a feeling of, of, of everybody knuckling down together and closing in and hunkering down and not getting too worried about the outside and just caring about what's going on inside. And I think that what's happened over the past few days will strengthen that. And I'd like to think that some of the uh, slightly over-the-top reactions that the players have seen, or will, I'd like, I'd like them to have a video session where they sit down and somebody's compiled a playlist of all the best rants and all the best tweets and all the nonsense to kind of bring them even closer together. And yeah, like, yeah, look, yeah. this is what we're up against. This mentality at the club, James, uh, that Amy was talking about. Um, I've had a number of Arsenal fans of my um, vintage sending me the clip of George Graham talking to the boys after we had points deducted after the Battle of Old Trafford and how it unified the players. And one of the things he was talking about in that clip was getting the fans on side. Now, you know that I'm Mr Positive at the moment. And part of that is to do with how it feels as a fan and how the fans are reacting. I think you tweeted about the fans at Liverpool and what the noise they made. The I think it's the younger demographic of the away fans, but it feels like that a little bit of the Emirates as well. Um, is this part of the same thing, that, that there's a unified feeling at the club and, and um, these things will only help that? I think so. And it's, you know, something Mikel Arteta's talked about and talked about all through the kind of behind closed doors period as well, unity, the importance yeah. of getting fans back and having that sense of unity. I think that other things have played into that too. I mean, think of the officiating that Arsenal have endured in recent weeks, the Manchester City game where it felt like everything went against them. I think that helped rally the fans. It's I mean, a the conspiracy, fans been, mate. It's what it is. It is a conspiracy, absolutely. And, and the fans have been on side all season, but I think this stuff just kind of ramps that up and I think looking back to last week for example and getting that nil-nil draw at Anfield one of the first things I thought after the game apart from how brilliant the away fans were was what a great atmosphere it promises to be 
at the Emirates Stadium for the return leg. And I think everything that's gone on this weekend with the derby and the postponement and the reaction to that is only going to fan the flames of that atmosphere. I think we are going to see a, a white-hot Emirates Stadium uh, on Thursday night, and I'm I'm very excited about it. Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree completely. I think it's going to be fantastic under the lights in a semi-final. Amy, you want to chip in? Yeah, here? although my next-door neighbour who I bumped into in the street said, oh, God, it better not be like that semi-final of the Champions League with the flags where it's like white hot, amazing atmosphere for about five minutes until, oh, until the thing got punctured. So <laughs> I think I think the performance has got to be there to match. Yeah, well, quite. But you, you to a certain extent, this whole sort of unification, the, those players know they've got us on side now. They have a real chance here to take us to places we haven't been for a while. Uh, and, and I think they see that as well on that, subject of that Liverpool uh, game we won't talk too much about it and by the way if you if you I know James wrote a piece about Xhaka and his five sendings off and I think it was his eight sendings off before that <laughs> before he arrived there's a lot of sendings off um and but if you want to hear an analysis of what we think about Granite Xhaka I refer you to the 15 pods we've done about that in the past um but Amy it was a terrific back to the wall performance um we sort of looked comfortable, didn't we, after the 24th minute? I, I mean, I don't know about... I, was, I wasn't I was sitting there feeling comfortable, but the players coped very, very well. And aside from Minamino's chance at the end, didn't really offer them a chance. And if we we need to see an indicator of progress, surely a place that we normally go to and we're 3-0 down after 24 minutes, we got a 0 0 and we looked fairly in control of that, didn't we? I think the way they managed the situation was incredibly impressive. Um, you know, this is a situation where they had adversity uh, with the sending off added to a situation where you're already going to a place which has probably got quite a lot of bad associations for the players. You know, they've gone up there and suffered before. So to show that level of focus and concentration and discipline uh, and resilience and effort was uh, terrific. And I think a, a, a huge stepping stone in the development of the team because knowing that they can do that knowing that they can see a plan through when they have to suddenly do something that is uh you know uh, sometimes you you know, I think when you speak to players occasionally in those sorts of games and in fact I think you can even see it if you're looking really closely at their faces and their expressions and their eyes you can almost see that they attain a slightly higher level of concentration than normal I don't know how that happens or why that is, but I suspect it's something to do with knowing that you're really up against it and that if you don't find a slightly higher level, you've had it. And somehow I think all those players on the pitch managed to get into that zone of um, really extreme concentration. And I think in the toughest games, that's... A fundamental thing that you need and for all those players to have gone to that level and they sort of did similar I think against Man City and 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 come through with a positive result really stands them in good stead for future you know, challenging scenarios of which we hope there will be lots because you want this team to grow and grow and have more and more knife edge games with a with with a lot at stake yeah uh, I mean James one of the players who did 
really step up. He was named man of the match in that game was Ben White. Um, after the game, he gave a very honest interview about how hard it is to play against Liverpool. And he was talking about the very thing that Amy mentioned there, that concentration. He looked wiped out. And there was a bit of me watching him after that game thinking, my God, he's got to step out against Spurs on Sunday. But uh, luckily that didn't happen for whatever reason. But... Um, yeah, that level of concentration, I think it shows even progress from the Man City game and the fact that we got a positive result this time. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they were very unfortunate not to get anything against Man City. City got a really late break of the ball in that game and and they and Liverpool didn't. You know, they had a chance to win it and blazed it over the bar. So Arsenal got their little bit of luck this time. I thought Ben White was brilliant. He was absolutely knackered. So knackered, in fact, he said he was happy to come away with a point uh, in a cup tie, which... <laughs> can happen when you're a little bit fatigued. Um, yeah, I thought he was excellent. And I think it suited him, actually, the way that Arsenal changed the game. Once Shaka went off, they went with a back three. He slotted in there. He had Rob Holding on one side of him, Callum Chambers on the other. Uh, and he could just focus on his own job in quite a small area. But he defended really well. And I, what I really like about Ben White is his character I think he like you spoke about his honesty he said it was terrible playing that game and you know implied that he found it sort of very draining and not particularly fun but I like that kind of honesty similarly to yeah. when he was asked about if he watches football and he was sort of quite dismissive about it um, there's something slightly unconventional about his willingness to just be honest in front of the media and uh, I have to say I've warmed to that and I think with it he's incredibly talented footballer I think as soon as you see him you can see the ability the question marks were more over the defensive side but I, I think in fairness to him several times this season he's produced some some very strong back to the wall defensive performances so yeah he's had a really strong start at Arsenal and, and this was a, a sort of crowning moment for him I think this was his best performance of the season quite um yeah, Liverpool on uh, Thursday, very much looking forward uh, to the second leg. By the way, uh, something I missed out, which I just wanted to mention, um, <laughs> with the Premier League talking about all these postponements, and I just said uh, there was a, uh, a headline saying Tottenham have asked for more consistency. And I just feel like I should fr frame that. I mean, that could have been written any time in the last 60 years, uh, to be fair, <laughs> about them. But anyway, um, <laughs> all things being equal. And uh, and let's hope that False Positive FC don't uh, have a sudden round of COVID or whatever else might happen. Um, and then we'll get to play them on Thursday. And then we've got Burnley on Sunday as well, which is also a big game. One other thing, by the way. Um, oh, sorry, Amy, you wanted to say something there? No, I was just going to say that, you know, I think one thing that might have been lost in all the furore about the postponement is that, you know, Arsenal have still got a very slim line uh, squad at the moment. And, you know, quite the position that the, the, the team is going to be in to be picked for Thursday is still up for question. You know, we don't know how many people will be fully recovered um, and fully available. There's still players who are missing on uh, longer term situations or away at the AFCON. And, you know, there's still a need to try and bring in one or two more reinforcements. And, you know, it's going to be probably an emotional one and a very, very demanding game again on Thursday night, whatever the outcome. And Arsenal have also got to pick themselves up to play on Sunday against Burnley and have that same level of intensity to make sure they pick up the points. 
you know, it, and then there's a bit of a breather, although there's a possibility, I suppose, of some of the games being rescheduled post Burnley. But I just think some people might have got a bit too giddy about the postponement. But I mean, we've still got a difficult situation to manage. It's good that they've had a little bit more of a breather and a bit more of a rest. But, you know, and, and, and we're still at the mercy of somebody else important might get COVID over the coming days. You know, it's been going, the way it's been running through the squad is in, you know, little dribs and drabs. It hasn't been a sort of sudden, enormous outbreak. It's one here, a couple there, then they get better and another one gets it. And then another couple get get it. So, it you know, I don't think Arsenal can take it for granted that all their most significant players are scot-free for the coming games. That's a really interesting point. And actually... Among the Premier League clubs, there is some sort of debate about that because there are certain clubs where it's felt like maybe the the COVID situations weren't uh, controlled as well as they might have been. So it engendered a lot of spread within squads very quickly. Um, and the implication is that there was a kind of benefit to that in a way because it came with a certain degree of herd immunity, which has kind of prevented squads suffering further outbreaks. Um, Arsenal have worked really hard to control the kind of individual cases that they've had, but it's led to this drips and drab effect that you, that you describe. And they've had 11 positive COVID cases, I think, since uh, the Sunderland game, which was on the 21st of December. And the likelihood of that suddenly stopping just because there's been a postponement of the Spurs game is quite slim. You'd think that, you know, if it's been generally making its way through the squad quite slowly, that may well continue. So you're absolutely right to flag that we are not out of the woods yet. On the subject of our squad, Thindus, um, James, is there any news on some of these players? I mean, there was talk about a player called Arthur Mello coming in. I also, by the way, saw Jed Spence as a possibility. Uh, is that just because he played well against us and gave uh, Martinelli a tough game? Or have we, as I hope, been watching him for some time? Well, if we've been watching him for some time, I think we'd know that he's not... Uh, he's a player who has problems as well as strengths. He was fantastic against Arsenal. But he's a guy who was sort of bombed out of Middlesbrough on loan at the start of this season by Neil Warnock, who said at the time, the guy needs to sort his head out. He could go all the way to the top or he could end up in the non-league. And his loan spell at Forest is really about him kind of adjusting his attitude, his professionalism. And I think reports on that have been improved, but I think Arsenal would want to be pretty thorough in their work scouting this guy rather than just take it off the one game, which I'm sure would be the case. I suspect that has played into the degree to which this has become a media story, but he is a really interesting prospect. You don't see many fullbacks or wingbacks who are kind of six foot three and can do everything he can do. I mean, we've got one on the other side in Nuno Tavares, potentially. Um, I wouldn't mind having another, and we could do with a, a, an understudy to Tomiyasu, that's for certain. Uh, as for the other incomings... Uh, no concrete news at this point. I mean, nothing's really changed. Arsenal would like to sign Arthur Mello on loan from Juventus. He's a guy who started in Brazil, came over to Barcelona, performed pretty well for them, was involved in a, a big money, uh, well, a big exchange deal with Juventus with, I think it was Pjanic going in the other direction, which was valued extremely high, certainly raised a lot of eyebrows um, in terms of the accounting on that deal. But he's he's struggled to um, 
He struggled to have the impact at Juventus that he might have liked and he's not a regular starter for them, especially this season. But he is an important squad player and someone who does come on, who does get minutes here and there. And they are a bit concerned about letting him leave on loan without a fee, without a replacement. And so that's the hold up there, really. They need to make a decision on if they are prepared to lose him uh, or if they're going to wait and see if they can get somebody else in. It's a deal Arsenal would like to do. It's practical. It's a loan. It's a player. Arteta and Edu both like. But it's, you know, ultimately it's in their hands, right? Amy, we'd never let a player leave on loan without a fee, without a replacement. Would we have particularly one from central midfield? <sighs> um, <laughs> anyway, I was I did have a little chuckle thinking uh, about midfielders that my um, slightly absurd campaign to get Jack Wilshire re-signed. You know, maybe not signing him was the difference between us being able to get the game called off. Yeah, maybe that (laughs) was the explanation. Um, Watch this space, right, is what we're saying. Okay, Uh, I'll tell you what, this is Handbrake Off, uh, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. Substitution from Arsene Wenger. A first Premier League goal for Nicholas Bentner. It's 2-1 to the Gunners. It's not a bad ball in. Sani is in there. Great save. Nicholas Bentner! That could be a massive goal for Arsenal. And Nicholas Bentner has done it. Nicholas uh, can be an unstoppable striker. We're going to chat about a birthday boy now. Uh, yesterday was the 34th birthday of uh, one Lord Nicholas Bentner. Played for Arsenal for quite some time. 171 games, 47 goals. Uh, Amy, I was thinking about Bentner, who retired from football last year, quite early on, actually, at 33 years old. One of these guys that thought he was better than he was, and it's not helpful in certain situations. I'm thinking of the new Camp, particularly when he took a touch, when he should have just hit it. But... Did that really sum up his Arsenal career? The fact that he basically thought he was a brilliant player when he was just merely rather good? I always wondered how much of that persona was was real and how much of it was like a bit of an act. And I think only he knows the answer to that. Because um, it was it was so um it was so sort of slightly comedic that and he's quite a bright bloke that I I just have my doubts that it was for all his confidence and he had lots. I think it was more a question of 
how you know about his professionalism how much did he want to learn how much did he want to listen how much did he want to develop so I don't know whether that's a kind of mistaken concept of how good you are therefore you don't need to or whether it's a completely different characteristic but uh, he definitely always carried himself with this uh, very self-assured manner and I remember um, I think he was probably about 16 uh, I was invited to the training ground years ago to help a group of the young players that were coming through with their sort of media training there was a few journalists a few different types of journalists there um, someone from the tabloids someone from the broadsheets someone from radio someone from tv and the that age group had a kind of half day media training and the two people who immediately drew, drew your attention of as having a charisma that was completely separate to all the others was Cesc Fabregas and Nicholas Bentner in completely different ways but they just stood apart from the rest in their confidence in their expressiveness they they just looked like guys who were ready to be footballers only those two in terms of the way they carried themselves not talking about skill on the pitch or anything um and i have to say i had quite high hopes that he could really be you know a bit of a special talent when he first appeared obviously made some you know very important contributions and he had ability but i just don't know whether he had that internal hunger and desire to do everything possible to make the best of his ability i mean this is uh, there's no doubt he had ability as amy said james but that arrogance that he has i, I can't really find any other word for it does that We've been talking about the connection with the fans. Do you think that him in, in our team today would not be helpful because of that arrogance? Um, the, the fact that he, he didn't seem to care what we thought of him? I think that there's some, I think that, that can be a useful trait for an athlete to have that kind of absolute conviction. But I think, as Amy says, it, it needs to be twinned with a hunger and determination. I mean, I, in some ways, I think the model for Bentner was someone like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who could not have a, a bigger, more obvious ego in terms of the way that he projects himself. Or less, but, or less uh, care for what the fans think of him as well. Indeed, but but it is underpinned by this absolute drive, determination, commitment, work ethic. You know, there's a reason that managers uh, have always embraced him and cherished him. And if you look at the physical conditioning that he has, if you look at, um, you know, even even the practice of martial arts, while it was sort of part of the persona, it fits with that idea of someone who is incredibly disciplined. And he absolutely had that. And I think that's the component that Nicholas Bentner didn't have. I actually don't think the arrogance in itself is too problematic. I think for a goal scorer, someone who's going to miss chances and has got to be able to take the next one, I think that can be really handy. I just think you need the other part of it and that's where he missed out. But I do think that he has become a bit of a punchline and I understand all the reasons why, but I, I just don't believe that a manager as astute as Arsene Wenger would have dedicated as much time to his development 
as he did without some some real talent there. And so it's a shame that at 34, we're talking about a guy who's who's been retired basically for coming up for two years or something like that. Yeah, I remember this game. I think it was a game against Burnley when he missed maybe six chances and started laughing at how ridiculous it was. And there was general outrage uh, amongst quite a lot of the fans. Whereas I thought that's actually not a bad attitude to have. I mean, they talk about decent footballers or proper footballers having the memory of a goldfish, essentially. So as soon as they miss a chance, they just let it go and uh, and there'll be another one along in a bit. Not in all the teams that we've watched over the years, but I think Bentner certainly had that, didn't he? And and uh, and maybe, as James said, it's just that, that the fact that you compare him to Ibrahimovic, that phenomenal work rate and that desire to be the best. Maybe Nicholas didn't quite have that at the highest level. Uh, anyway, it's his birthday day, or it's yesterday, in fact, uh, 34 years old uh, on Sunday. And we'll always remember him for scoring uh, the fastest goal uh, in the North London derby by a sub. 1.8 seconds, it says on my screen. That's just basically from a corner and he headed it in. It was a good moment. And uh, thank you for that, Nicholas, if not for some of the other stuff as well. Although, to be honest, anyone who gets replaced in their position by Maro and Shamak uh, has uh, a ground to moan a little bit, uh, I would say. Uh, anyway, let's have a song. James, I'll start with you. Uh, well, uh, everyone was sort of saying, you know, that shame on Arsenal, shame on Arsenal after this. So I went for Shame, Shame, Shame by Shirley of Company. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> did you? Yeah, suitably upbeat. <laughs> So did I. So I'm going to have Fight for Your Right to, to have a work event, all right? Okay. Uh, as uh, a number of people have made that joke. But uh, we are fighting at the moment, and uh, I like to see it. Uh, Amy, what about you? Just talking as you almost did about Thomas Partey. Um, uh, also worth noting that Garner are in a bit of trouble. And if they don't get a good result and the go- things conspire against them, he could be back. But possibly by, you know, if they got a quick plane by Thursday. Unlikely, I know. I mean, they've got to be Comoros by 2 0 in their final group game. Um, right. Uh, which they, you know, they may well do. But um, it's, uh, yeah, they're, 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 def- they're struggling. They're third in their group. And at the moment, they're, they're not even sure to be one of the best third place qualifiers in the AFCON. So uh, everyone, dig out your Comoros shirts. Uh, and uh, keep an eye on that because that may may be a a, a, a premature uh, and fortuitous return for the fight for your right to Thomas Party. Um, my song. Uh, I was just on the side of the people who were amused by the uh, reaction to the Arsenal uh, Tottenham postponement, and um, I'm going to go for uh, Godly and Cream and Cry. <laughs> Have that. And uh, kids, kids, if you don't, if you've never heard of it, check out the video. It's an all-time classic. Yeah, it's marvellous. Uh, that's it. We're done. Thank you, uh, Amy. Thank you to James as well. And thanks to Abby, our producer. We have been the Handbrake Off podcast for The Athletic. I'm Ian Stone. Uh, have a good day. Enjoy Thursday. <laughs>